folks. Welcome to True Crime or Tall Tale. I'm Jacqueline. Each week, myself and my co-host, Kat, tell you two stories. One is a true case and the other is a work of fiction. And in the end, we will challenge you to guess which one was the true crime and which is just a tall tale. Kat, how you doing? I'm doing pretty all right, you know? I got to wear armor today at work, you know? I'm living the dream. I will elaborate no further. Gotta keep the mystery alive, guys. But yeah, you know, I got to wear armor at work. Best best job I've ever heard of. Like, I'm feeling like a complete badass, you know? It's just, it's it's Gucci. I'm, I'm great. How are you, Jack? I'm alright. I'm doing well. I am I'm very excited about this episode, and I think we are appropriately cozy sharing the same true crime blanket that I mentioned last time. Yes, the true crime blanket. See, you know, we want everyone to be comfy cozy when listening to this, but we know that that's not likely. You are probably doing something like driving, or dishes, or, I don't know, vacuuming with the volume up in your ears so bad that you're probably going to lose your hearing within 5 to 20 years. Relatable content. But when we record, we're super comfy cozy. Cool is that you at least like us. Ideally, we're a comfort to you. Because I refuse to believe that I'm the only fucked up person who finds a little bit of comfort in true crime. I think there's a lot of us out here where we're kind of safe listening about heinous crimes and heinous acts. And in this case, heinous heists. Well, with um, pleasantries over, let's get into it. So, this week, we are going to be talking about white collar crimes, specifically bank heists. Bank heists! Don't you, um, work for a bank, Jack? Okay. (laughs) Yes, I do work for a financial institution to my boss and my four coworkers who said they would listen. Any opinions I have on bank burglars are purely coincidental. (laughs) Okay. Perfect. I did not sit very stiffly in the break room and research this for the past week. Oh, Somehow worried that you would know. (laughs) Worried gonna find out it's like when you're in the line for tsa and it's like what if i accidentally have a bomb what if i accidentally have a bomb i'm like what if what if they know i'm researching bank heist and they're like oh my god yeah it's like i'm in the break room researching bank heist not for any personal this reasons. is for purely entertainment's sake <laughs> this is for entertainment <laughs> you know don't don't you look up crimes while you're at work about what you do for work no okay just me <laughs> Anyway, moving forward. So, what happens when you steal money that, according to every record, doesn't exist? Oh, well, then it's yours. (laughs) Obviously. Finders keepers. Finders keepers. What can you get away with when no one's looking for what you're stealing? Or when the person you stole from can't admit to having it in the first place? Are these crimes the white-collar version of nobody, no crime? Today, we are talking about bank heists, the greatest heist no one has ever heard of, because some people believe they never happened in the first place. So grab a fuzzy blanket, your favorite drink, or if you're like us, a hot bowl of soup. Hell yeah, soup. Let's get cozy wherever you may be, because it's about to get uncomfortable with these stories. I'm so comfy to get uncomfy. (laughs) Let's go. All right. So in preparation for these stories, I'd like to talk a little bit about the difference between robbery, burglary, heist, and larceny. These were the buzzwords I was very uncomfortable Googling in my bank break room. (laughs) Although I did learn some of this from my robbery training. Larceny just doesn't sound like it's what it is in my brain. Which is just stealing. Larceny, it sounds very similar to the term laceration in my brain. And I'm just like, larceny, laceration, those aren't the same thing. I have to really work through that. Perhaps you will during this podcast. (laughs) Good. So when you think robbery, that is the act of 
stealing through force or the threat of force. So a bank robbery is when people come into the bank while there are still people okay. present. Yeah, that was what I was just about to say. Okay, so robbery means that people and like witnesses are kind of there. Meanwhile, I'm going to guess burglary is not with witnesses. So yeah, so in order for it to be a robbery, there needs to be someone there to threaten with force to give you what you want. Okay. And yes, the act of burglary is simply, it's kind of like trespassing. You have to break into the facility for it to be a burglary. And you steal without the threat of force. Okay. So burglaries or a burglar is usually, when it comes to banks, entering the bank after hours with no witnesses or anyone to threaten. Okay. It's generally considered the more sophisticated sophisticated crime of the two. Right, because you could imagine, like, I mean, I'm, I'm not thinking about bank robberies right now. I'm thinking about national treasure. Would that be considered a burglar? I don't know. Okay, well, now now I'm thinking on it deeper than just my immediate thought. And what I'm wondering now, would that be considered a burglary or a robbery? Because, well, there are witnesses at the party. Like, people see him and there's people there. But well, the way- he's doing it sneaky and he's not holding people at gunpoint. So is robbing people like you're... you're you're actively threatening people and not just there are people there. Yes, robbery isn't so much the fact that there are witnesses. It is that you used force or the threat of force to attain the goods you wanted to steal. Right. So National Treasure, from what I remember, he He is burglaring the Declaration of Independence. He is burglarizing, yes. While the other people are trying to rob the Declaration of Independence. They're both of them are stealing the Declaration of Independence. Larceny. (laughs) It's all larceny. But both of them are heists, am I right? Yes, yes. I would say a heist absolutely encompasses burglaries. (laughs) I wouldn't say every robbery is a heist. Guys, how do ghosts rob banks? How? They pull a poltergeist. (laughs) (laughs) I've been holding on to that joke for years! Years, man. This is the perfect place to tell it. I'm so glad. That's my favorite joke I ever tell, ever, because I made it up on the spot. See, you wrote jokes for this, I didn't. But yes, generally amongst, like... Criminals and investigative authorities, robbers are more of your run-of-the-mill bad guys who just happen to have a gun. Right. And burglars tend to be a crew, tends to the heist, and they tend to be very sophisticated and very well planned. Before we jump into our cases, would we like to do our wine advent? Yes, before all the ice melts in these pre-iced glasses, because we're monsters who ice our wine. A Chardonnay! Oh, it's a white wine! It's a white wine this time! It was a red wine before. It only fits because this is a you episode, and you're the white (laughs) wine bitch, and last week was a me episode, and I'm a red wine bitch. Mmm. It kind of tastes like nothing. (laughs) It's smooth. It's very smooth. Like, there's... You just hear our ice clinking this whole time? ASMR. God, someone's gonna hate us. Yeah, reminder, this is from a wine advent calendar that Jack got me for Christmas, and we thought might as well use them for the first few episodes of this. I want to hear about your cases. Alright, I'm very excited to tell them. I want to be thoroughly tricked, and I will be a little embarrassed if I am tricked, but I tricked you last week, so it's only right. Yes, and this time, it's just you guessing, It is just me guessing. There's no one else to bounce off of. No special guests, it's just me and my, my brain. All right, case one, Kansas City, Missouri, 1988. David Noddick was desperate, desperate to keep his house, pay his bills, and get out of the $300,000 of debt he found himself in after his wife got sick and racked up thousands in hospital bills. 
That's a lot. <laughs> his salary as a janitor for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City was not enough to support his family. This was when he hatched his plan to steal from his employer of 15 years. 15 years. Okay, so he was a janitor. Yeah, so he has worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City for 15 years. And because his wife got sick and they're in debt, he's decided he has to steal from his employer. Okay, awesome. Part of the Federal Reserve's responsibilities was to receive worn-out and mutilated cash from banks in their jurisdiction. If it was determined that the bills are unfit to return to circulation, they would be shredded on site. The cash is placed in bulletproof glass carts after inspection, and when it is time for shredding, the carts are locked by a supervisor and wheeled down to the shredding room by another employee. So you're saying that there's, like, places where money goes to die? Yes. <laughs> Well, the government does keep printing money, so in order for it to not just become worthless at one point, you gotta shred the old stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because it's old, it's because it's worn out. It's ripped, or it's torn, or it's threadbare. That's the thing that, like, fucking wigs me out about paper money, is that just at any point, like, I'm like, wow, this arbitrary piece of paper is worth something. <laughs> It holds an international value. Yeah, like, it's so wild to me. Like, it's like, I can conceptualize, like, coins and, like, gold bars, but, like, paper money, I'm like, yeah, let me, like, hoard all this paper money. But also, it's like, you make absolutely no sense. If you get torn, you become zero dollars. I mean, I will say, as, as a bank teller, you can bring in a torn bill and I will tape it back together for you and deposit it in your account. I know, but it's, like, supposed to be, like, not valued, right? No. Oh, no. Okay. My dad always told me that, but you were I mean, I would not so recommend I... going around ripping your money, but yeah. no, I legally cannot say- Ripping a 20 and a half doesn't make it two 20s. No. Like, when you come to deposit it, you gotta have both halves. Yeah. But, yeah, if it comes in taped, I'm gonna look at it and be like, yeah, this is a whole 20. Where'd you like to put it? Savings or checking? Right, okay. But yeah, if it's um, mutilated means, if for whatever reason, it's been like literally bled on or Ooh. pissed on or- Oh my god. Literally unfit to yeah. be around people. Yeah. Mm, I, bloody money. Ooh. <laughs> Tantalizing. Um, I'll pass on that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's why. Thank you for Federal Reserve for making money go away and the government for printing new money that's not covered in blood, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. Once in the shredding room, the carts would be unlocked by a key attached to the industrial shredder. Okay. The entire building was closely and continuously monitored by CCTV cameras. The employees' bags are visually searched by security guards upon entrance and exit of the building. So they understand that they are a building full of cash. Right. With human people that might be tempted. So they take measures to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. These worn out bills are David's target. No one will come looking for money that isn't supposed to exist anymore. Oh, okay, okay. David sees sees these dollars that are, like, going to be destroyed, and it's just like, they could be mine, though. He's like, what if a few came home with me? What if a few slipped through the cracks? Is anyone really going to notice if a few don't get shredded? Yeah, exactly. Really? Like, bloody it's... dollar? It might be just my bloody dollar. All right, I'm not saying everything's bloody. <laughs> 
it's the it's the one that I keep thinking of. Okay, yeah, you can get a most of the time. It's going to be like okay, it's just like tattered. And, I don't know. If you want to imagine this all as bloody money, go right ahead. I'm gonna stop you. I would like to take this time to say, and I don't know if anyone else realizes it, but like when you work with money all day, it's the dirtiest thing in the world. Oh, oh my god. Yeah, no. Um, I wash my hands constantly. Literally. Oh my god. The freaking it feels like sludge coming off your hands. Like I could count. So let's gross. say let's say I could count like three hundred bills of any denominations in a row. My thumbs come away black. Yeah. No, it's gross. Literally, my mom taught me from day one. Like, if you touch cash, you wash your hands. David wants to intercept that cash before it hits the shredder. Right. Okay. I mean, felt bad, man. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the Reserve used standard padlocks on the cash carts that could be bought at your local hardware store. Okay. Why would you do that? They replaced the cylinders in the lock and made their own keys. But they look exactly the same on the outside. Oh, okay. That, okay. The padlocks on empty carts are kept open until the cart is filled, and then the padlock would be closed for transport to the shredding room. Okay. After weeks of careful planning, David recruited his two longtime co-workers at the reserve, Kent Rumintz and Louis Brewster. Okay, so David also works at the reserve. Uh, for some reason, I didn't catch that fact in the we beginning. We literally talked in the beginning about how he's worked there for 15 years. You're so right. <laughs> he convinced them that the rewards far outweighed the risks and that they wouldn't take enough for anyone to notice. They're so gullible. The plan was carefully explained, rules made, Signals established, and on January 13th, 1988, they started stealing from the Federal Reserve. Oof. Alright, now let's go over the plan. Okay. First, David would replace the open reserve lock on an empty cart with his own identical-looking padlock. He did this by using sleight of hand while wiping down the empty carts. He then hid the real padlock and cart number in the second-floor bathroom trash for Lewis to find because he's the janitor. He, it's his job oh to my God. clean the carts okay. and also clean the bathroom. So that's... Yeah. Oh, right. He's the janitor there. That's why I he has... He was a janitor, and I just totally forgot that he was a janitor at the Federal Reserve. Okay. There we go. Full circle janitor. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. So he has... Access to both the carts while they're empty. Right. And all of the trash. Right. Okay. Next up is Kent Rumens, who transported the cards to the shredding room. He held the first key to the fake lock, and David used subtle hand signals while passing Ken in the hallway to indicate which cart had the fake padlock. Ken's job in the heist was to unlock the full cash cart while waiting for the elevator to the basement, discreetly slip a few packs of cash into the trash, and relock the cart before entering the elevator. He would then transport the cart as usual to the shredding department, where Lewis completed the job. Okay. Lewis was the third leg of this plan, working as a shredding technician, his role was to unlock the fake lock and replace it with the original so that everything was as it should be when the cart returned to the top floor where they inspected the money. He held the second key to the fake lock and retrieved the real lock from the second floor bathroom, the only room without cameras, where David hid it in the trash. Okay. So the crew has successfully gained access to a cart full of cash, took an amount that wouldn't be visibly noticed, stashed it in the trash, and returned the real lock to its rightful place. But how do they get the money out of the building? Did they put it in their bags and walk away? No, wait, you can't do that because it's security. That's right. Okay. Your bags are inspected upon entrance and exit of the building. Do they put it in trash bags? Oh, you guessing. <laughs> Am I just completely wrong? You're... you're, you're 
trash bags are an element of this. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm thinking, like, they probably try and, like, hide it in the trash or something. So, David emptied the trash bag with the stolen cash into his janitorial cart, met the other men in the second floor bathroom just before their shift ended. They stashed the cash on their person to sneak it out of the building, tucking it into underwear waistlines, socks, and anywhere that it wouldn't be noticed when they passed through security on their way out. Oh my god. That, like, legit? <laughs> like... Them stuffing it into their... Oh my god. So the security is, like, not doing deep measures on So the security personal. is not, like, strip searching you. Yeah. Well, even TSA, they put you... If they put you to that spinny thing, it's not gonna tell them that you've cash in your pants. True. Valid. Um, I was just hoping I guess, that it would be uncomfortable, like, patting them down. Being like, are you putting any cash in your pockets? Yeah, security is not doing a pat down every day. Mm. Well... Maybe they're going to have to change that. <laughs> this is also 88. This is not that this is an airport. This is pre-9-11. I think people maybe still had some trust in humanity. Yeah, I mean, now now security just anywhere. Like, going to a convention. Oh my god, it's like you're going through TSA. <laughs> anyway, each score didn't yield a high dollar amount, but they had to be discreet in order to not get caught. So they played the long game. They took a small number of bills each time and split it between the three of them. Their goal was just to get ahead, not be millionaires. David just wanted to get out of debt and save his home. Ken wanted to save up enough for himself and his wife to travel the world. Lewis was a single father who wanted to move his two kids out of a bad neighborhood and pay for a private education. Okay, so like they all had like kind of good intentions, but you're you're going about it the wrong way, my guys. I'm sorry. They're not like your man in a mask and a black and white striped shirt with a bag that has a money symbol on it, walking in and saying, I want all this cash. Yeah, exactly. There's some depth, as people tend to have. Right. So after three years oh my of God. doing this and never getting caught, they accomplished their goal and stole over $1.2 million. Oh my God! <laughs> three years! Oh man, you know what? <laughs> Are you, like, at that point... I'm, I'm a little impressed, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I don't condone crime, but I don't know. This one, you've been doing it for so long, I'm a little bit like, oh, wow. I'm a little impressed. Yeah. For legal reasons, I can't say I am, but I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh, my God, how sneaky. Right. But once again, like, I cannot reiterate enough as someone who works in a bank, the only way you get away with this is if no one is looking for the money. Right. Like, there are so many checks and balances when it comes to receiving oh, like cash and handing thing. out cash and keeping track of what comes in and out and what you still have. But when that money's not supposed to exist anymore. Right. This place is like, this money is going to get destroyed here. Yeah. Thing. Like, these serial numbers are not supposed to still exist. Yeah. Type situation. So, yeah, if no one's looking for it, who's, who's to say? Right. Like, their biggest enemy is maybe security says, why does your sock look a little rectangle? <laughs> like, but yeah, no one's like, we have been robbed, sound the alarms. Right. No one's actively going like, Where, where's all our nice freshly printed money? It's no, it's the reverse. It's like, oh, well, the money's gone. Probably what was supposed to happen. <laughs> Right, well, they're, they were like, yeah, we shredded, I don't know, 40,000 bills this past month. Who's going to question that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who's going to question it? They're gone. You can't count them now. Right. Like, as long as what you still have is what you're supposed to still have, I think you're good. Exactly. So they had to be very careful about their spending as to not arouse suspicion. 
any cash deposits over $10,000 are automatically reported to the IRS by banks. Okay. This normally is not a big deal if you have legally obtained the cash and can easily show that to the IRS if they have questions. Right. <laughs> so like your average person, I don't know, let's say you, let's say you run a cash business or you do like contract work and you get paid in cash a lot. If you go deposit over $10,000, your bank fills out a CTR, a currency transaction report. The IRS most likely is going to go, well, what do they do for work? Oh, they're a contractor that gets paid in cash and we can find the records of them doing these jobs. All right. Like a tattoo artist. Yeah. For example. Yeah. They might not ask too many questions. If you work in a cash business, they might not ask too many questions, but like, let's say you do get a regular paycheck every week and there's no evidence of you having a second business and there's no evidence of you selling your car or your house or like something else that someone might pay cash for. Let's be honest, they're going to think you're selling drugs. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to ask questions. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's when that's when it becomes money laundering, right. which is where you put illegally obtained funds into a financial system. Oh. There we go. Which is what, like, mobs do and drug dealers and... (laughs) Am I just dumb or I'm like, I've, like, heard the term money laundering or, like, yeah, I think so-and-so's business is a a money laundering front. And yet part of my brain just kind of nods and goes, yeah, whatever that means. You finally (laughs) just told me what money laundering is and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. It's not like you're taking money to a laundromat. (laughs) No, I mean, like, if most people who print counterfeit money do run it through a washer so that it looks less fake. Are you kidding? <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm gonna be honest, I'm getting that information from the show Good Girls. Please do not quote me that in a court of law. <laughs> okay, I won't perjure you. But yes, yeah, so their next step, essentially, after getting this cash out of the bank is to launder it into their accounts if necessary, or to just purchase things in cash that don't I mean, raise suspicions. My brain would just to be just to have the cash under a fucking pillow. Right, but let's say you're in these shoes. Let's I say you're like... David and you have medical bills. What are you supposed to do? Send three hundred thousand dollars worth of cash to the hospital? Mm, that's true. Right, like at some point you're gonna have to put it in an institution and write a check. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's your next step is like how the fuck do I explain where all this money came from? You gotta just do it in small increments over time. I am not giving advice on how to launder money. Okay. Neither is Catherine. <laughs> For the record. I'm not genuinely trying to help anyone here, but my my thought process in a completely hypothetical sense would be to slowly do it over time. Yes. To actually just do it all at once to raise so much suspicion. Um, <laughs> just get that. Yeah. The other, the other fun fact is if um your bank employees think that you are purposely depositing just under ten thousand dollars repeatedly, that's called structuring, and they'll file a suspicious activity report, and that's illegal. Okay, so really don't do it in weird increments slowly over time. I'm just saying if you do. <laughs> Someone might file a suspicious activity report. Well, what if you do like, I don't know, 7,000 here, 2,000 there? Yeah, that might not raise any eyebrows unless it's consistent enough and they're like, where does this money come from? My dead great aunt. Maybe. Anyway. I'm only getting the uh, inheritance in increments. Yes, the lawyer likes to give me weird, not the same amounts, over weird, different times. Yeah. (laughs) 
totally makes sense, right? Opposed to getting $1,000 every month or something. Yeah. So back to the IRS, our favorite thing. It's tax season, guys. Oh my god. However, if the IRS looks into your financial history and suspects money laundering, things get messy. And that's exactly what happened to David, Ken, and Lewis. To quote my favorite quote from Batman the Animated Series, and this is in the POV of the Joker, it's the Joker saying this, I'm crazy enough to take on Batman, but the IRS, no thank you. (laughs) This trio either was crazy enough to take on the IRS, or they just thought the IRS wasn't going to get involved. Dude, if the Joker doesn't want to fuck with the IRS, why should you? I get panicky every time it's tax season. My dad's an accountant and I don't want to fuck with the IRS. Oh god, it just makes me nauseous thinking about it. (laughs) Once again, it's like going for TSA and being like, what if I accidentally have a bomb? It's like emotional TSA every time I do my taxes. You file your tax and you're like, what if I accidentally (laughs) committed a federal crime? (laughs) What if I accidentally committed a federal crime? Exactly. What if I accidentally lied? Even though it's to the best of my knowledge and capabilities. I'm like, I don't know how much money I made. Uh, Anyway, moving on. I'm not here to give tax advice either. (laughs) I'm just stupid. I don't know how to read. You're a college-educated woman. I know you know how to read. I At a somewhat level, yeah. Well, okay, it's different when it comes to math numbers. I was the only reason you passed math freshman year. Exactly. That's the only reason your parents like me. (laughs) No, really. I think there's a lot of reasons that my parents like you. That's the first reason they liked me. Yeah, they were like, okay, she helped our our idiot child, thank God. And then I I turned out graduating summa cum laude, so part of that's thanks to you, man. Yeah, you graduated ahead of me. Yeah, man. Moving forward. After our crew had successfully laundered their money, they attempted to come up with cover stories to explain their newfound finances and their, like, lifestyle-changing purposes. Okay. So, David bragged about fixing up an antique sports car and selling it for a significant profit (laughs) to a collector. Did he have an antique sports car? Not that any papers that the IRS looked for showed. (laughs) Very believable story, my guy. But once again, I don't think they were making up these stories to tell the IRS. They were like, like, if your neighbor or, like, someone you work with is like, oh, hey, I see you've made some new purchases or like you've got a nicer car or like you just look like you're spending more money than usual. You can be like, oh yeah, I came into some money through this. Ken Pose as a part-time investor, he was doing surprisingly well for a novice, claiming him and his wife's extra income came from his investment returns. Okay, it's a little bit more of a believable story. Do you have anything backing up those investments? Definitely not, but that's fine. Right, your neighbor's not asking for the paper trail. Yeah, exactly. Your neighbor's not asking for the paper trail. Alright, what's uh, what's Lewis's story? Lewis told those around him that his grandmother had recently died and put aside money in her will to pay for his children's education. Here's hoping Nana's not dead. Or Nana is dead, rather. Here's hoping Nana is dead for you to have that cover story because if both Nanas are alive, man. There's a lot of questions asked. There's a lot of questions asked. Hopefully they're not living in the same town. You'd have to be so dumb. You'd have to be so dumb to do that. Yeah. Okay. Still, even with their cover stories, they got sloppy with their spending. Of course. Making larger and larger deposits to accommodate their life-changing purchases. CTRs, as I talked about earlier, were filed, and the IRS began to investigate how three people making average pay working at the Federal Reserve were coming across 
across all this cash. And they weren't buying the cover stories because there was no paper trail to back it up. All the IRS knew is that based off the tax documents, these individuals were not claiming this as income. They weren't paying taxes on it. So where was this money coming from? Both the FBI White Collar Division and the IRS were investigating the trio, at times combining resources and intel to try and prove the crew was stealing from the Federal Reserve. I think that's another reason that the FBI might have gotten involved is because they were people who had access to cash in some capacity. They worked at the Federal Reserve. Like, if they worked at Wendy's, they weren't going to be like... Right. Like, it's a little suspicious. They work at the Federal Reserve. Like, it's like, how did these people who work here coincidentally get so much cash? Hmm. I wonder how. Right. So I think that that perks some eyebrows at the FBI white collar division. Very reasonable of the FBI. Is that something we say often? Very reasonable of the FBI? (laughs) Very reasonable of the FBI to assume that, you know, it might be the people that work there. Yeah. But the authorities kept running into one problem, however. How do you prove someone stole money that technically doesn't exist anymore? That's how I would if I was the Federal Reserve, and this is coming from a person who absolutely does not know anything about how the Federal Reserve actually works, but I feel like there should be a stringent record of the serial numbers of money they have that record for when it gets stolen otherwise right first off most banks do not keep a record of every cereal on each bill that they have okay well i feel like that that's that's called bait money which also and this is why i don't believe in bait money i as a teller do not check the serial numbers on the cash i receive to know if it's on a report of stolen money the the cashiers you're handing it to do not check that i feel like at the federal reserve if you're destroying money you should have a stringent list of those serial numbers in my opinion of the (laughs) ones that are being destroyed so that if they get stolen and the serial number still exists bam what bam all right well you have in my opinion (laughs) they'd have to um i guess catch them with the stolen bills and the federal reserve would have to give them access to their records (sighs) All right. They extensively looked into the security measures at the Federal Reserve, and the Reserve President insisted that there were no cracks in his system. <laughs> this is where I think we start to get a little bit of, like, dick measuring contests. Oh, boy. Where a boss or a president of a federal sector... Mm-hmm doesn't want to admit that he could be stolen from. Right. It's like a pride thing, you know? Yes, it's like yes, it's it could a, never happen here. It's a pride thing. And honestly, that's if you're if you're loosey goosey with your morals a little bit, it might be in your best interest to um pretend that this isn't happening. Cause if it's proven, that goes on your record. Yeah. And you most likely get fired. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that sounds like it's more of a self-preservation thing. Yeah, it's not like, oh, he's in on it, he's getting cut. It's like, if they prove that I'm being stolen from, that looks so bad on me. And you could lose a job and never get a new one in this field. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal if you were running a system that allowed three low security clearance employees right, to steal. All, yeah, yeah, they're not the people inspecting the money. They're not. They're really. They're, they're, they're not. They're not bankers it's or the financial. janitor and and the cart person, which transport. Okay. And and the shredder. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. If those three get caught stealing it, it's gonna be real bad on you. Because it's not even anyone that's, like, not knocking, but, like, it's not, like, the people who are, like, important. Right. Well, and, like, 
I think there's a bit of prejudice where you might be like, there's no way that the like really important people I paid to make my security system and to set all these checks and balances in the Federal Reserve right. didn't see what these people saw. Right, exactly. But those people don't empty the trash. Yep, people who emptied the trash see everything. Literally. It's scary. <laughs> yeah, like don't <laughs> snub your nose at like people doing menial jobs. They see everything. Right, like just because someone that you think isn't quote-unquote smarter than you doesn't mean that they don't have another perspective right. that's in, that that has value. Right, exactly. In exactly. this case, it had value in ripping off the Federal Reserve. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, still, months after surveillance and trailing the crew by the FBI and the IRS, they moved in to arrest them in their homes. Everyone, except for David, was taken into custody and interrogated. Here, they all made confessions that they would later recant at the advice of their lawyers. These false confessions, quote-unquote, are how we know how they might have pulled off this heist. Okay. David made a run for it just before the police moved in for the arrest. He took some cash and hid out at a motel a few towns over. He eventually turned himself in, but only after securing a lawyer to represent the entire crew. The lawyer that told them, you need to recant like this minute you can't really you 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 should not admit to that they haven't brought any evidence forth (laughs) right with the confessions recanted and no physical evidence recovered from their homes besides an unusually large amount of cash and really no proof of a crime considering the reserve president won't admit to there being money missing right the fbi's case was at a standstill in the end the fbi couldn't prove that there were any illegal money laundering or larceny taking place and the charges were dropped. What? Hold on, hold on, hold on. But the IRS was able to prove that they had committed tax fraud. Ah, uh, good old-fashioned tax fraud. It's like the mob. Sometimes you can't get them on their cri- on like their big crimes, but the IRS is like, <laughs> at least we got tax fraud. They're like, have you paid taxes? <laughs> Everyone's got to pay taxes, bro. Everyone's got to pay taxes. So the heist crew collectively paid over two hundred and fifty-five thousand dollars in back taxes and fines and were each sentenced to one year in jail for tax fraud oh my god okay and that is the end of case one all righty okay they basically got off scot-free they did very little jail time they paid for it i do believe their stolen money i do believe that um they probably got pretty wiped out at that point with um all those fines and back taxes yeah oh my god and i imagine if you had anything left you've got to like get rid of it because there's no way you're going to get another dollar in there without paying taxes right again like the irs is literally has a case file on you right they're watching you with eagle eyes at this point you will not be able to do that again so damn yeah that is um that is the end of case one all right cool All right, guys, we're back for case number two. Case number two. It is Youngstown, Ohio, 1972. Ooh, first 80s, now 70s? I'm freaking wild enough here. Are you listening to my music tastes? <laughs> Listen, I think this was prime heist era because, you know, we haven't gotten into, like, the crazy, scary, sophisticated security systems yet. Right, yeah. Not to say that this wasn't hard. I'm just saying things were different. Yeah, things I feel like were a little lax back then. Not, like, deliberately lax, but... 
I feel like because things like this happened back then is why things are a lot more intense now. Right. And I think, especially back then, the less automated things are, the more it requires manpower to have the security and the records that you would need to prevent and or prove crimes like this. So when it requires all those man hours, sometimes, you know, people are people, human error stuff slips through the cracks. Yeah, to err is human. To R is pirate. God, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) So. (laughs) Moving on. The place, Crime Town, USA. Okay, what a name. (laughs) It's not, that's not its legal name. It's Youngstown, Ohio. Oh. That's its name. I'm trying to do a bit. (laughs) I'm, I am very literal. Honestly thought that was kind of funny if there was a place called Crime Town, you know? There's, there's like places in the United States called literally hell. So I wouldn't have been shocked. Anyway, so Youngstown, Ohio, also known as Crime Town, USA. Okay. That is the place. The era, Nixon is on the re-election campaign and the Watergate scandal is still one year away. Okay. But someone knew that Nixon had $30 million in dirty campaign money hidden in a small California bank and they decided to sell that information to the highest bidder. All right. Mark Sinito, professional criminal, paid handsomely for that information, believing that he was a about to get the score of a lifetime and screw over the American president at the same time. Once he knew which bank to hit, all he needed was the perfect crew to do it with. Alright. So, let's meet the Sunito crew. First off, we have Mark Sunito, our masterminds our lifelong criminal who knows what he's doing. Then we have his older brother, James, who's in charge of explosives. Then we have Buck Pasticcio, who is his brother-in-law through marriage of his sister, and he's in charge of supplies. And then Terrence Stevens, our lookout guy and the getaway driver, who is Mark's nephew. And Chris Phillips, our muscle man with former mob connections. Then we have Brock Harold, our alarms man. Okay. So we've got mastermind explosives, supplies, lookout and getaway driver, muscle and alarms. Everyone you might need to burglarize a bank. So we're burglarizing. We're not robbing. No, there's no threat of violence. No threat of violence. (laughs) Just got to get our education lesson in there. So our first case also was more of like a burglary. No robbery. So I don't know if it can be considered a burglary because they never broke into the facility. So that I would just call larceny. They were they were just stealing. Okay. And according to the federal government, they were really just not paying taxes. Yo, according to what legally they got charged with. Just tax fraud. Yeah. Cool. Moving forward. This um, case. Case number two. So once Mark assembled the men who would go up against the United States president, he needed to get to California. So on March 15, 1972, the crew arrived in LAX to begin what would be a three-week-long crime of the century. They stayed at a condo a short walk from the bank that Mark had rented during an earlier trip to scout out the bank. Mark also bought a getaway car under a false name. The trunk of the car was retrofitted to have a false bottom so they could store all the burglar supplies underneath. It was a small bank in a shopping plaza next to the highway, considered a high-risk location with low security. So explain that. Any financial institution Mm -hmm. that has easy access to the highway, a freeway, an interstate, high-risk location. Because the theory is, you get in, you get out, you get on the highway, you get as far away as possible before the police even arrive. Wow, okay. So, if you're like my old bank in New Jersey, and you are in a field literally across the street from the police station, you're a low-risk location. Nice! <laughs> um, yeah, that was great. 
Um, yeah, if you are a small bank in a shopping plaza, literally right next to the highway, you're a considered a high risk location by bank robbery standards. Don't work there. Nope, don't don't suggest it. And um, yeah, from what they could tell, it had low security. Why not just always have banks across or near police stations? Well, I'm... <laughs> I should be a city planner. Well, because not every bank is planned by the city. Sometimes they're, like, privately owned for-profit institutions. I feel like, logistically, they should still just be near them. So they need to have, what, their own zoning code? Yeah. And the only place you'll zone a bank is across from the police station? Absolutely. Wow, I'd love to see the city you'd make. <laughs> I'll open up SimCity right now. Let's go. <laughs> It'll be the safest city until the tornadoes hit. <laughs> what? What? Oh my god, you've never played SimCity. No! SimCity, you build a city, and then natural disasters and other things destroy it. Is this a branch of just regular Sims? It came before the Sims. What? I know. History. Okay, I've been giving you a lesson in um financial terms, but you just blew my mind with SimCity. <laughs> yeah, SimCity exists, man. You'll have to show it to me sometime. I will. There's a small bank in a shopping plaza next to the highway, considered a high-risk location with low security. So we're in a high-risk area, because it's by the highway. Yes, yes, okay. this, this this location, yes, is cool. a high-risk area, because it's next to the highway. It's a small bank with Quick low security. Right? Yes. Okay. The crew cased the bank for a few days, never entering during business hours, so they're never caught on camera inside the bank in like their street clothes pretty slick which like that's something some bank robbers will do is that they might walk into the lobby a week or so before they plan to actually hit it just to get a look around like all right where are the cameras how's it set up you know all that jazz i'm not giving advice on how to rob a bank please don't do that please (laughs) but when they do that You are caught on camera, at least by today's standards, with today's camera technology. You are physically caught on camera. This is not the Bonnie and Clyde bank robbing days where you got to, as John Mulaney would put it, spray your name into the wall with bullets. We're not spraying our name in bullets. We're trying to get away. Right. Real slick. They never risk entering the bank during business hours. They never risk being seen by bank employees. Right. Pretty slick. Mm -hmm. They're they're professional criminals. Okay. From Crime Town, USA. Crime Town, USA. So are we in Ohio now or was that just where it began? That's that's where the crew is from. This is the small bank in California. LA. Right. Right. Um, Near, yeah, near LA. They flew into LA. LAX. Nice. Okay. Their plan allowed them three days to disarm the alarms, blow open the vault, and loot all the safe deposit boxes, specifically looking for the millions supposedly hidden there by Nixon. So the tip they got said that Nixon was keeping his dirty campaign money, which he got, supposedly, from, like, extorting people or people being like, quid pro quo. Yeah. <laughs> being like, hey, I'll give you a million dollars towards your re-election campaign if, um, you don't pay attention to this organized crime or you right. give me a pardon. So this money may or may not actually exist, according to... So our mastermind, Mark, believed that he had gotten a quality tip because the person said, hey, I know Nixon is storing his money in this bank in these two safe deposit boxes because he can't really put them in an account right now because they're dirty money. Okay. And... I can tell you exactly which two safe deposit boxes, and I can tell you the name of the bank. And the guy said, I believe that this is good intel. I will pay you for this tip. Okay. So the plan would involve them starting Friday night after the bank had closed 
and returning the next two nights over the weekend when the bank was not open. So basically they would break in Friday night and then no one would be around to discover their break-in until Monday. Oh, okay. And this is in like 72, so there's not really like security cameras. Like, I believe... There's probably, like, rudimentary of them. Yeah. But... Yeah. But also, their plan... There's not, like, cameras on the roof. Right. Their plan is to get right in the vault. Yeah. So, the only problem was that the drugstore next door was open late, limiting their working time. Mm. They had to wait for the last employee to leave the drugstore before they could start breaking into the bank. <laughs> Okay. March 24th, 1972. It's a Friday night. Once the last employee left the drugstore, they could move in. They had to disarm two alarms, an exterior sounding alarm, and an interior silent alarm. Rock disabled the exterior alarm using spray styrofoam so the knockers couldn't ring. So what it is, what I've seen, is it's like a box on the outside of the building. And okay. it's it's wired to something. I don't know. And so I guess if the doors were to open or it got some kind of signal that there was a robbery, like imagine like like a kind of like a school bell yeah it knocks against it and it makes this loud noise and everyone around is supposed to hear it right so what you do is before you even touch anything that might set it off is you spray spray styrofoam in there and let it harden and then once you hit whatever would trigger it to ring because of the spray styrofoam the knockers can't knock they don't make any noise oh my god okay so the next they climb up onto the roof, and they cut a hole in the roof. The roof? Just cutting a hole in the roof, casually. <laughs> well, the roof, by poor design, is plywood. Why would you have your bank's roof be plywood? One inch thick plywood. What? Are you kidding me? I don't even know how much weight plywood could... Maybe because it's... Thank God it doesn't snow in LA. I was maybe because the building was probably already a part of the shopping plaza before a bank bought it. They said, that can, that's fine. That's fine. I, I don't even think plywood would stop leaks. What if it rained really hard? Okay, so you cut the hole in the roof. Now, because it's a bank, below this plywood is an 18-inch thick slab of concrete. Okay. Which is the top of the vault. So they weren't trusting plywood to keep you out of the thank, vault. Thank God. They're like, that, that's just to keep the bird shit off of here. <laughs> Still I feel like that would rot so fast. Okay, why don't you call the contractors in LA? Call an OSHA. <laughs> an OSHA and be like, hey, go back to 72 and get rid of the fucking plywood. What the fuck is with the plywood? <laughs> so, they cut a hole in the roof. Mm -hmm. They lower down onto the concrete slab. They are slightly worried about sensors. Like, they're not 100% sure about the security system in here. Okay. So they don't, like, jump down. They don't throw their supplies down. They lower themselves down. And they find the control panel on the wall once they're inside. So the control panel, it'll get a signal that, like, there's motion in the bank. Or the vault door's been opened. Or I don't really know. It's the 70s. And then it'll set off the silent alarm. And that alarm is wired, once it's been set off, to go directly to the sheriff's office. Oh, wow. Okay. So they'll be like, the silent alarm went off at this bank. We should go check it out. And I believe the same thing would happen, like, if you just cut the wires, it would still send the signal to the sheriff's office or they get a signal that that silent alarm has gone offline which is a red flag to them right so what they do is they successfully rewire the control panel so that it jumps over the part that sends the signal to the sheriff's office what so the panel and the silent alarm is technically still active That's it's so still technical. live but it doesn't send a signal to the police. That's so technical. I, pff, my brain couldn't even conceptualize something like that. I'm telling you, these are professional criminals. 
else. Anyway, so yes, they rewire the control panel and bypass the silent alarm. So while they're doing all this, Terrence, their getaway driver, is parked in the parking lot with a police scanner and a walkie-talkie, ready to tell Mark if he sees or hears anything concerning or anything on the scanner that says, hey, the police are coming. And he is in the car ready for them to all jump in and speed away on that highway if things go south. So they use a power drill to drill holes into the concrete roof of the vault. Then they slip in dynamite into each hole. It's kind of like in a circle. Okay. And the dynamite's all wired together. And then they have filled burlap bags with dirt from the bank's flower bed as kind of like sandbags. And those are put on top of the dynamite. One, to try and muffle the sound of dynamite. Oh my god. And B, to force the blast downward to kind of make the hole as opposed to just go out. Oh my gosh. Okay. And then they save some of these sandbags, essentially dirt bags, Mm -hmm. and they make kind of like a barricade where one person is behind that to activate the dynamite and that the bags are supposed to kind of protect them so, you know, you don't die by dynamite. Right. (laughs) And everyone else leaves the vault roof area. Okay. So they light the dynamite. Dynamite's on fire. Dynamite explodes. It it go kaboom. The sandbags come five feet off of the vault roof. (laughs) Oh my god. From the blast. Okay. Luckily, I guess for them, our member of the crew that ignited the dynamite is okay. But they're like, wow, that was so loud. We have to exit this area, like go all hide in the bushes to see if the police come. No, please come. Oh. Okay. Gucci. Apparently LA is so used to earthquakes that when a dynamite blast goes off. People are like, oh, that was just a small earthquake. Yeah. That worked out in their favor. Wow. The dynamite did successfully break through the concrete roof of the vault. Okay. Below the vault is rebar. So like a grid of metal bars as like that secondary security. Right. They okay. use blowtorches blow to torches. get through the rebar. So after they cut through the rebar, they have full access to this vault. Okay. So here's the thing. This vault has 500 safe deposit boxes. 500? They're not even going after the cash that the bank itself holds. They're going after specific safety deposit boxes. So they're going after Nixon safe deposit boxes and whatever other ones they feel like cracking open while they're there. Okay. Because usually... Collateral damage. And like this is near LA. These are supposedly a nice part of town. Supposedly wealthy some, people yeah, some that would use people. these. You're probably going to find some other valuables besides Nixon's millions in campaign money. Right, with like plenty of other affluent people in the the area you might find I don't know pretty diamond necklace or something. Right. A lot of people keep their very expensive jewelry in their safe deposit boxes or savings bonds that you don't want to lose in a fire. Maybe you keep some cash there just just in case yeah. you need to run away from your, your wife and three kids. Yeah, you keep some cash that you want no <laughs> record of. That's the other thing about safe deposit boxes. The bank is not supposed to know what you have in there. Damn, you know what the uh, guys from the old, the first case should have done? Safety deposit boxes. Oh, they should have put all their money in safety deposit boxes? Yeah, if you said that the bank's not supposed to ask. They could have absolutely done that, but once again, how are you going to spend it? How are you going to buy a new house? <sighs> how are you going to um pay off your medical bills? At least it's safe, Jack. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> anyway, they drop down and they use sledgehammers, basically. Okay. To break open these safety boxes. They really just bash it. That's why you need Chris, you're a muscle mob man. And the first thing they go after is the two safe deposit boxes that supposedly have Nixon's money in it. Supposedly. They pull them out and they find $12 million in $1,000 bills. They're, that $1,000 bills? Yeah. No way. Yes, they exist. Trust me. I worked at a bank. Who's on them? Jack 
No. Jefferson's Jefferson's on the $2 bill. What the fuck do you want from me? I want to know who is on the $1,000 bill. Grover Cleveland. Yeah. And James Madison. Oh, what? Yes, there are two versions. I think it's either there's one on each side of the bill or there are two different versions. The $1,000 bills are basically collectibles at this point. Like, if someone walked into a bank, like, I remember this when I worked my first one. I man was taking out a large withdrawal and I said, do you want hundreds? He's like, yeah, unless you got any of those $1,000 bills. And I thought he was joking. But no, they exist. What the fuck? If someone walked into a bank with a $1,000 bill, I'd be like, what do you, what, what the fuck is this? What? I'm sorry. I'm taking a minute. <laughs> Uh, that's insane to me. It's like me with wheat pennies, except the absolute reverse. Because those are basically worth nothing unless they're uncirculated. Because they're a penny. And they're a penny. But yes, that's the only way you could have fit $12 million in a safe deposit box. Okay. Is if it was $1,000 bills instead I'm of hundreds. glad we checked that because I literally was like about to be like, $1,000 bill? That's not real. <laughs> You think I put shit in here you couldn't Google? Besides, like, the actual case? I don't know, man. Could try to trick me. Try to pull a fast one on me. I could. I do like to lie to you. So, it was in the exact spot that the informant told them to look, but not the exact dollar amount. Because 12 million is a far cry from 30 million. Yeah. Like, 12 million is still fucking impressive. It's close to half, but, like, about, I don't know, 3 million shy, and a million dollars is not... Not something to sneeze at. That That is something to sneeze. Wait. Please stop. Three million dollars is a lot <laughs> to be missing from being half much of what you were, you were asking for. The sound barrier. I'm so sorry. I told you to get loud. You got real loud. I did. I did got very loud. Okay. The crew took what they could carry the first night and replaced the plywood from the roof and placed a small mirror on top to reflect the sun. So the theory from Mark our mastermind is like they could check on it from their condo or like somewhere around the bank before they return the next night and if it still reflected the sun no one had bound the broken roof and disturbed their work damn okay so the crew returned the next two nights to continue breaking into safe deposit boxes and taking any valuables they could find it's jewelry it's savings bonds it's cash it's wild stuff and then before they left on monday morning mark drilled a hole into the vault door lock mechanism to make it harder to open by bank employees oh to delay God. the discovery of the burglary. Wow. The crew then loaded the loot into suitcases and flew back to Ohio. Only thing left to do was cover their tracks. Buck was supposed to destroy the getaway car and supplies, but instead parked it in his old buddy's garage, Don Erlings, where they had been storing it since before the robbery started. Or sorry, the burglary. Mm, that feels like a mistake. Yeah, I it's totally not there to foreshadow anything. Oh, no. I'm talking <laughs> about, like, you're storing it instead of destroying it like you were supposed to. Yeah. And then Mark hired a cleaning crew to completely wipe out their presence in the condo. The cleaning crew scrubbed the walls, ceilings, floors. They wiped every surface down. But they forgot about the dishes. No. So, the crew felt like they had gotten away with the crime and that no one would be coming after them. The bank employees reported that they couldn't get their vault door to open that Monday morning, and the FBI was brought in to investigate the potential burglary. There were no usable fingerprints on any of the burglary supplies left behind. Their only lead was that it was an out-of-town crew because they simply said, there's no one in this town smart enough to pull this off. <laughs> And where do these ones come from? 
Ohio. Ohio. But five weeks later, the same crew pulled an identical job on a bank in Ohio, which caught the attention of the Ohio FBI office. Oh my god, rookie mistake, guys. Come yeah, on. But much like our first case, they got, they got a little greedy. They got a little... Why would you do it five weeks after? At least wait like a year. <laughs> Come on, five weeks is too soon. And the Ohio FBI office was very familiar with Mark because he's a lifelong criminal. Why would you do it in your home state? Yes, like, he's a lifelong criminal. They've been trying or they have been pinning him for stuff for years. But, you know, burglary and robbery carries much lesser charges than, like, murder. So, yes, the Ohio FBI office calls the LA office and says, We have a name we think you should look into for your burglary because... It pretty much exactly matches our burglary, and this is the guy we're looking at for this one. The FBI tracked down the condo the crew had stayed in while planning the heist and found the place immaculate, except for when they checked the dishes. When the crew unloaded the dishwasher, which was brand new technology in the 70s, nice dishwasher. They put the dishes away, but without wiping them down. So there was, like, probably a thumbprint on each plate. Oh my god. Rookie mistake. This was the only physical evidence that they could get from the condo. Oh my god. Okay. And this is the condo that they stayed in in LA. In LA, yeah. This is the LA field office. Next, they start looking into who in LA might have a connection to these people. And they discover Don Erlings. Oh no! Who was that old buddy of Bucks who grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. Oh my god, a small town connection. And they said, hey, we should probably go talk to him. So, the cops met up with him at a bar where he was known to frequent. And not just the cops, it's the FBI. It's the FBI. It said, hey, It's we- the super cops. <laughs> Said, hey, we need to talk to you. This probably is not the best place. We should go to your house. And he said, why not? So while the FBI are sitting in Don's living room asking him, hey, like, do you know these people? You know, Buck calls Don. <laughs> Literally while the FBI is in his living room. <laughs> are you kidding me? You couldn't talk about worse timing! Not at all. Buck is calling to ask Don if the police have been sniffing around, asking any questions. And not only does Don lie to Buck and say, no, no, no one's asking questions, he puts his hand over the receiver, because it's a landline in the 70s, and says to the FBI agent, hey, it's Buck. And then the FBI agent puts his hand over Don and says, do I have your permission to listen to this phone call? Oh my god. So that um, whatever he hears could potentially be entered as evidence because he got permission from the peeps yeah so the next thing buck says to don is hey i'm gonna be coming back in town and i'm gonna pick up that car we've been storing in your garage i'm gonna be back in town um let's say tomorrow yikes don says oh okay that's cool why don't we meet at you know that bar i like to catch up first and then you know we'll go we'll let you get the car Mm-hmm. sounds like it's gonna be a trap sounds like it's a sting so don who is now fully cooperating with the fbi lets them look around his house. They find the car in the garage. They say, hey, hey, it looks like the inside of this is covered in concrete dust. With Uh maybe a concrete ceiling that had been blown to smithereens with dynamite. Uh Uh-oh. They used that to get a search warrant for the car. They couldn't just get into it because Don didn't own it, so he couldn't give them permission to search it. So, they search the car, they find the burglary supplies, 
in that false bottom of the trunk. They know they can link it to Buck, who can link them to Mark and the rest of the crew. And so when Buck arrives at that bar to meet with Don, he is arrested by the FBI. Oh, no. And it's all downhill from here for the crew. In the end, the FBI recovered some of the stolen money, but could never determine if it was everything because they couldn't figure out exactly what was taken. So the issue with safe deposit boxes is that the bank, as far as I could tell when I worked at one, does not insure the contents because they can't tell, they're not supposed to know what's in there. Okay. So, you are supposed to get private insurance for the contents of your safe deposit box if it is of significant value. Well, it's the 70s. Maybe not everyone's getting insurance for everything. Maybe they don't keep a detailed list of what is in their box and isn't. Maybe they have no proof. So, it's so hard to determine, like, did they, like, let's say they recovered $4 million. It's so hard to determine if they really got $12 million from the boxes that were associated with Nixon or if they really got $30 million because of everything else that was in the boxes. Like, it's such an undocumented thing to steal that it's hard for it's hard for the police to know when to stop looking. Right. This is such an interesting set of pairings, Jack. Yeah. Because both of them have that, like, who knows how much. Or, or who knows at all. Like, who knows this one, all. clearly, someone broke into a bank vault. Well, yeah. But, you know, it's like the fact that you can't really, like, put, like, a determined number on it all, you know. Unless, yeah. In this case in particular. Eventually, everyone on the crew, except for Terrence, the getaway driver, was arrested and sentenced to between 6 to 25 years for the burglary. Terrence wasn't arrested because he went on the lam after he caught wind that Buck was arrested in LA. Oh, I was just about to ask, what happened to Terrence then if he didn't get caught? He was a fugitive. Damn! Okay, Terrence. And the FBI agents in charge of the case say they never believed the story about Nixon storing millions there. Granted, they work for the government, which kind of directly and directly works for the president. Yeah. They said they interviewed almost every owner of a safe deposit box at the bank and none of them had connections to Nixon. Plus, they never recovered anywhere close to the millions the crew claimed Nixon had there. Okay. So, how much did they really steal? And was any of it Nixon's dirty campaign money? The world may never know. We may never know. (laughs) Alright, so that is the end of case two. I am going to hand you the mic to um, kind of give your thoughts and um, have you tell me which one you think is the true crime and which one is the tall tale. Hey all! Before we give our big reveal, pause and go to our Instagram at True Crime or Tall Tale Podcast and comment on this episode's post. Tell us which case you think is the true crime and which one is the tall tale. Then tune back in to see if you were right. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. All right. So I think you have a really good set of cases here, Jack. Thank you. I think, I I said it a little bit earlier, but I think it's very interesting that both of them have that point of not really having that super determinable, like, X value. Like, this one has the, you know, because the nature of safety deposit boxes, you might not be able to determine exactly how much. Or even the fact that, like, whether or not it was Nixon's dirty money at all, that meant, like, that mystery is really interesting. And then also with the Federal Reserve trio, you know, the money isn't supposed to exist at all. So it's like, how do you quantify something where you don't have, you know, the the control over that value? I'm thinking on whether which one is the true crime and which one is the tall tale. I'm... 
leaning that the first one is the true crime and the second one is the tall tale this time around. It's a little bit close, but my logic is that cinematically, a team of professional criminals feels a little bit like it could be a movie, although this one is very realistic and I haven't seen. It does not seem familiar to me in like the way of like I've seen it, but it feels familiar in the way of its professional criminals. Meanwhile, the the Federal Reserve case, they're just three dudes trying to get by. And I feel like that seems a little bit realistic in how they're just some dudes. And I'm like, could I make a movie out of that? I could. I absolutely could. But I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with my gut on here and I think the first one is the true crime and I do think the second one is the tall tale. And I and if I'm completely wrong, holy shit, that's hilarious. <laughs> alright, alright. So you have been duped! I have been duped? How did you do that? So, 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 for our listeners at home whose eardrums I hopefully did not just break, <laughs> case number one is the tall tale, and case number two is our true crime. What? Are you kidding me? All right, um... You wrote that like it was a heist movie, like it was Ocean's Eleven! Because, to be honest... The crime really was a heist movie. That is so awesome. Are you kidding me? <laughs> All right, let me pull up it my- It was um... like textbook heist movie. Why do you think I picked it? Oh my God. Wait, how was the first one fake? Okay, all right. Because I also felt like you told me about the first one at some point and then you went, forget this, I'm going to do white collar crimes at some point. Did I? If I did though, I told there was you something... about the movie. There... No, because there was something familiar when I when you said janitor, I was like, oh. Okay, so Damn. if you want to know about the, the Tall Tale first, I'll tell you about the Tall Tale. The Tall Tale is Mad Money, the movie, released in 2008, starring Diane Keaton, Queen Latifah, and Katie Holmes. Oh my god. So I took liberties with this um, story. Eris, who is our dear friend and roommate and uh, my proofreader, said, Hey, I think you need to make them men because three women robbing the Federal Reserves feels very Ocean's 8. Feels very Good Girls, the TV show. It yep. feels girl power movie. And I'm like, damn it, sexism, you're right. Damn it, sexism, you strike again because men pulled the wool over my eyes. I expect this shit from men. So um, I had to change the motives a bit and obviously the names and the whole kind of scenario. Um, oh my god. But no, the plan that I presented you was the exact plan they presented in the movie, which is janitor switches keys, carts person takes money, unlocks cart, puts it in the trash, relocks cart. And I was thinking like when you were reading off that story that that felt a little cinematic. Oh my god, the whole janitor thing just felt so subversive that I was like, this has to be the real one. I've been thoroughly, thoroughly tricked. I'm so happy to provide you with the service. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) So Diane Keaton, who I referred to as David, whose character was actually named Bridget in the movie, she had not worked at the Federal Reserve for 15 years. She had been a housewife and her husband husband had no no her federal was like some high affluent like finance man or like consult business consultant who was downsized and like 2008 is when the movie was made so i also changed the year but that's like the recession and the housing market and all that so like, yeah it's hard times in america always but you know in that year as well yeah. <laughs> um and he tricked me too yeah i'm like he had lost his job and hadn't worked for a year and then dropped the whole we are three hundred thousand dollars in debt and i've given up and she said well i've got to do something so 
So she just gets a job trying to just, you know, do her part, take care of this house. And then she gets the idea. She's like, I can make this work. I said that she had worked there for longer because I, that one of the unrealistic aspects of the movie is that she basically convinces these two strangers in two sentences to join her heist. Right. And I'm like that. There's no trust. There's no honor or trust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You kind of need to be buddy-buddy for me to be tricked. I figured this would also work as a tall tale because the movie didn't get great reviews. So it's not like this it's super not like, well-known Yeah, it's classic, not like you're doing Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, classic movie, classic crime. It is one of my favorite movies to watch with my mom, though. Hell yeah, though. But I have said, even before I sat down to do this, that the only reason it works is because no one is looking for that money. Yeah. For anyone working at the Federal Reserve now thinking, could I do this? No. No. Because you were kind of onto something with recording the serial numbers of each bill. Oh, I was. Which, oh, amazing. I'm well, so And smart. when you kept bringing that up, I'm like, fuck, she gotta know it's fake because it, because I didn't get caught. <laughs> I don't know if they still do that now, but the carts are weighed empty on super, super high-tech scales and then weighed full after they put in all the bills that are to be shred. And apparently on scales that could detect a single bill missing. Whoa. And then I think after they are shredded, the shredded materials are weighed. And as long as that, well, A, the cart is going to get there and be the same weight it was upstairs and be like, awesome, perfect. And then I think what is shredded in the machine is then weighed and be like, perfect, this adds up to what was supposed to be in the cart. So right. we're good. No one stole any money. <laughs> but you know, I don't know what the security was like in 88. Maybe you could have pulled this off then. Probably not. I don't know. I don't know. So yes, that was our tall tale. It is Mad Money starring Diane Keaton, Queen Latifah, and Katie Holmes, released in 2008. I really like it. A lot. It didn't get great reviews. It is kind of kitschy. It does maybe have some pacing issues, but I really like it. And you know what? You can judge me on my movie taste if you want. I'm not going to judge you on your movie taste. That's fine. I mostly met the people at home. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we have strangers maybe be listening to this the strangers anyway so so now tell me tell me about the true crime okay so i cannot talk about this true crime without first mentioning my sources because keith sharon a reporter for the orange city register he in 2003 wrote a 10 part series about this heist okay and you know diving deep into like the political climate and nixon and the fact that this is before watergate i also like that was another thing that made me think maybe this is a movie because of the, the, all the set dressing with, you know, it being Nixon and like a year before Watergate, I was like, oh, well, this seems a little, the stakes are very high. Right. And I think that's what originally drew Keith in is like, you have these people from Youngstown, Ohio, this like crime mob run city deciding they're going to go up against the president of the United States and rip him off. You get to say you ripped off the president of the United States and for money, he can even claim he had because it's, it's dirty money. Right. So it is real life, but is the perfect cinematic masterpiece. Right. So, Keith Sharon originally wrote the 10-part series called Stealing Nixon's Millions in 2003. Then, the Orange City Register produced it into a podcast called Crime Beat, and season one was of the same title, Stealing Nixon's Millions, which Keith Sharon hosts. So, I read the articles, and I listened to the podcast. Then, Keith Sharon went on to write a screenplay for a movie called Finding Steve McQueen, who uh, was a no notorious action hero actor in the, you know, 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. It's called that because uh, our character that got away 
his name in real life is Harry. It's all kind of told from his perspective. Harry, not Terrence. Yeah. And he said he loved Stephen Queen as a kid, always had his posters. And that's kind of like what inspired him to like, you know, try and be cool, try and be suave, learn how to drive really fast, stuff like that. And so I think they took the perspective of like, this is his character finding, you know, like his inner idol. Wow. Okay. Anyway, I would love to watch this movie with you as one of our movie reviews. I would love that. So yes, I thought the fact that it did become a movie would help in it sounding like a tall tale because many people have seen this movie and be like, that sounds really familiar. I think that was a movie, but don't remember that it's based on true on a true story. I love it when things are based off of a true story. Anyway, and my um, one other source was the Crooked City podcast, episode two by Truth Media. Cool. So, Mark Sanito is Emil Dinzio. Emil Dinzio is the real name. Yes. So, is Mark Sanito, like, an actor's name? How'd you get that name? Oh, Mark I made up, and Sanito is just the letters of Denzio rearranged. Amazing. Perfect. <laughs> Tricked me. So, he is our mastermind. He was a lifelong burglar heist man. He is believed to have pulled off successfully without getting caught over 30 burglaries before this one. kidding me? Yeah. Oh my god. And, um, he... I forget exactly how much time he did, but it was less than 25. Oh my god. And then went on to, you know... Do more crimes? Do more. Oh my god. And I think the reason not everyone knows about him is because he doesn't talk about it. You go down as an American folk hero when you talk about, you know, stealing from the rich and, you know, living a kind of somewhat appealing from a cinematic perspective, gritty, grimy life. But then everyone knows who you are. Right. Everyone's watching you as you spend stolen money and try to get it back. But when you kind of slip into obscurity or, you know, live in Youngstown, Ohio, where everyone looks up to you because despite being a burglar, everyone around you said you were a nice, generous man. He switched to burglaries because he had robbed a bank with his brother with the threat of force and, like, had told everyone to get on the ground with, he had a gun and everything. And he said he stopped doing robberies he didn't like scaring people. Aw, so he kind of had a Right. I'm like, he's like, I want the money, but he's like, this is how I want to make my living. I just don't want to scare everyone. I don't don't want to scare everyone in the middle. Bad guy. I just want to commit crime. Right. And so, like, that's why I think that's why I don't feel so bad. Maybe kind of like being very impressed with this man. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is what we get to do when we cover a white collar crime because usually no one's physically getting hurt. Like, Um, I mean, yeah, no one really got hurt here. Someone just stole some moolah from Nixon and yeah, it's Nixon. Yeah, like, I feel bad for, like, the people who maybe kept their grandmother's jewels in a safe deposit box and lost a family heirloom. That sucks. I feel bad for that person. Uh, But steal from Nixon. Steal from the president. (laughs) Yeah. So... James Sanito is James Denicio. Mm-hmm. I just kept James. Yes, and he is still the older brother of our mastermind. Okay, so Buck Pasticcio is Charlie Chuck Mulligan. How did you get Pasticcio? I googled I googled Mulligan, and it comes up as kind of like a stew, and synonyms for it was Pasticcio. Okay. And um, I changed Chuck to Buck. He is kind of our bumbling idiot in this stuff, because he's, you know, he's Relatable. the one. Emil had a rule, after every job, you torch the car. Right. And, and he and, stashed um, the car. And Chuck did and not that's... listen to that. Also, Chuck's the one that called up his old buddy and said, hey, can we park a car here? And you brought in a civilian. Yep. So he he's kind of the fumbling idiot. So Terrence Stevens, our getaway driver, is um is Harry Barber, who is the nephew of Emil. So Harry is the perspective of like where the movie is told, and he's where a lot of information comes from because he did get away for so long. And so he, he's been caught. That is 
fascinating story. I think they play it up in the movie. I'd love to see it. So he goes on the run. Um, someone else involved was his brother, Ron. And he wasn't really involved with the heist. He just was kind of hanging around the crew. He was a Vietnam vet that came back. He had been exposed to Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. And he was just kind of another character in this, but he didn't carry a big role but he was arrested and that always really bothered Harry that he that his brother got caught up in this because right. he kind of came back just like this sweet but traumatized man who right. has been poisoned by the war and I think literally yeah but so Harry goes on the run he walks through a cemetery and chooses the name of a man who had recently died but was born the same year as him. And he goes to this small town in Pennsylvania. And he's trying to live his life. He's living under a assumed name. He literally went to the DMV and said, hey, this is my name. I lost my license. I'm here to renew it. And it's the 70s, so you can just do that. <laughs> and eventually he kind of falls in love with this woman whose sister is the sheriff. Oh my and god. And he builds this life living as an honest man. Kind of living off the mo- some of the money he got from the heist. And he falls in love with this woman and eventually like being so close to the police kind of gets he event get kind of gets some call but he also kind of just like lets it happen wow he's like i was so tired of looking over my shoulder so he does a few years in prison gets out and unfortunately him and the girl don't stay together but that's when he kind of starts talking about it is when he's already done the time right. so nothing else can happen to him i can't recommend the podcast crime beat season one enough keith goes into it in so much depth he talks about the political climate the social climate just the era and these people people as people he really humanizes them in a way that I don't think we necessarily get to do in our structure right so I highly recommend that there's a great like very tragic love story there oh my god so I I don't want to give it away because I can obviously tell that Keith put like 20 some years into following this case and interviewing these people right so go give it a listen I think it's like eight episodes it's worth it you said it was crime beat podcast it's crime beat podcast I listen to it on Spotify it's Hosted by Orange City Register, and Keith Sharon is our researcher and our host. Amazing. Anyway, so that's kind of Harry's story. Ron Stevens is Ronald Barber, his little brother. Chris Phillips is Phil Christopher. <laughs> Because I'm not that creative sometimes. He is the mob muscle. And Brock Harold is Charlie Brokel, who was in charge of alarms. Nice. So something that went against them is they used their real names on their flight from Cleveland to LAX. Oh my god. So that made it real easy for the FBI to track their travels there. Oh my god. Once they got the tip from the Ohio office. You could have gotten scot-free if you just didn't use your real names. Yep. And other things. You could have gotten <laughs> scot-free if you didn't commit the crime, but you know. You know, what is the fun in that? <laughs> so the bank they robbed was the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel, California. Okay. The fun fact is the crew always carried cayenne pepper with them on jobs just in case they encountered dogs. No. Like, I don't think that was very common, but like, you know, instead of, I don't know, hitting them or shooting them. Yeah, or- but you to get the cayenne pepper in the nose and their eyes and that must hurt so much. Poor puppies. Yeah, it turns out cayenne pepper is a very um, effective dog repellent. No. 
I'm, I'm so sorry. I just thought that was an interesting fact. I'd never heard that. It is an interesting fact. Now I'm just thinking about dogs. Well, anyway, they were burglars, so they did not intend to encounter people during this, mm-hmm. but they always bought a shotgun just in case. Mm. And that's where Ron got involved, Harry's little brother, is that they Emil went to a pawn shop to mm-hmm. buy a shotgun, but he tried to pay with a check and they wouldn't let him because he had an out-of-state driver's license. And Ron lived in California at the time, so they had him buy it. And oh. that's his, that's basically his crime in this case. Is he bought the shotgun. He bought the shotgun. Anyway, the heist was supposed to happen on St. Patrick's Day. The luck of the Irish. <laughs> um, Very unlucky for you guys. If you admit, did it on St. Patrick's Day, you would have got all scot-free. So, their strategy was always to kind of hide the burglar supplies in bushes near the site so that you don't have to, you know, run across the parking lot, load it down with a power drill. Right. Well, that day, a jogger found the supplies in the bushes near the bank and reported it to the police. But the police never made the connection that it was that it was supposed to be used to rob the bank. So they didn't oh, increase security. My. They didn't increase police presence near the bank. They just said, weird power drill in the bushes. We'll take that. Weird that there's a power drill in these bushes. Are you kidding me? I feel like if you see any sort of power tools near a bank and there hasn't been recent construction, assume it's a robbery. It's the 70s, man. That's all I got is that's all I got to I say. say- Assume the worst when it comes to banks. As someone who works in the bank, yes. Anyway, so instead of the crew taking this as like a divine sign not to burglarize the bank, they said, all right, we'll try next Friday. We gotta buy all new shit, but we'll try next Friday. Yeah, we'll try it again. This isn't a lost cause yet. Yeah, so some people might say this is tinfoily hat. <laughs> some people might say this is just, you know, critical thinking skills, but um, originally eight FBI agents were assigned to the case, but a few days after the case broke... The agents assigned to it went from eight to 125. That is a significant upscale in the amount of agents. For a small bank burglary in California. Now here's the question. Who could have ordered something like that? I don't know. Someone like Nixon? Someone who maybe had a lot of skin in the game? Mm, Had lost some money maybe? Things to lose. And then, so according to um, records that have come out after Watergate, the meeting where Nixon gave the go-ahead to do Watergate was three days after this burglary. And so there's theories that this burglary and, like, the threat that Nixon felt that someone was going after his money, his dirty campaign money... Oh my god, it's totally connected. ...incited Watergate. Like, basically changed American history. Oh my god, tinfoil hat is on. Listen, it's totally connected. Oh my I, god, you cannot convince me I am, I don't like to think of myself as, like, the resident conspiracy theorist, but this one I buy. Yeah. I, I'm fully in on I'm like, listen, there's th- already so much dirty shit around Nixon. I, this one I, I easily I don't, believe. I do not doubt it. That sounds legit, actually, to me. So yeah, did the fear that people were after his dirty money motivate Nixon to go to political extremes? Oh my god! And then, so, like, the other crazy thing, so the tip was supposedly given to Emil by Jimmy Hoffa, okay. president of the Teamsters Union. His name might sound familiar if you... It does sound familiar. Yeah. He had supposed mob ties and was eventually arrested for jury fraud. Okay. So he was sentenced to 15 years. Supposedly, he donated $1 million to Nixon's re-election campaign, hoping for a pardon. The attorney general received the donations. Nixon pardoned Hoffa, but banned him from being the Teamsters president president. So feeling wrong. Teamster is like company? Team 
Sinister is um a union. Okay. And apparently a very powerful one back then. I don't know a whole lot about um organized crime, despite this episode. I just know it's a big name and a big deal. Sounds good to me. Hoffa, feeling wronged by Nixon, put out the tip that the $30 million of campaign money was in this bank in California. So that's where people think the tip came from. FBI doesn't believe that the money was there because no one had a connection to Nixon with a safe deposit box at that bank. But a man with the last name of Rebozo, a Florida financial advisor and confidant of Nixon, had admitted to taking under-the-table donations for the campaign and storing it in his personal safe deposit boxes in Florida banks. So, to me, this is not that far off from Nixon's usual style. Okay. It's just the difference between, like, you know, Florida and L.A. Right. What if he had a less-known connection in California? Right, yeah. I've got my tinfoil hat right on. Tinfoil hat is... On! Uh, it is. My hair is tucked up. It is securely placed. Nothing's moving it. Bobby pins are tucked into it. It's it not is going pinned in. The only other fun fact I have is that over the weekend that they were burglarizing the bank, during one of those days, so either Saturday or Sunday, a FBI agent was in that parking lot. Oh my god! He used that parking lot as like a meetup point to pick up kids who needed a ride to their little league practice, which he coached. Oh my god, how wholesome but also, dude, pay attention! So, yeah, like, if this was a movie, he would have noticed something wrong with the roof and oh. been like, and, and caught them red-handed. But no, I'm not that I'm blaming this man for not doing his job on his off hours. But he was literally there. Anyway, that is the story of the United California bank heist. And I could not be more thrilled that I tricked you. I am completely floored that you tricked me. Like, the way that you set up both cases... Switching the genders of the first one was completely the way to pull the wool over my eyes. Like, I expect nothing less of men. (laughs) Not to bash men or anything, but you know, if you have, like, women committing this crime, it does sound like Ocean's 8. Not to say that women can't commit crimes like this, but it's a little more likely that men are going to, especially with how subversive you casted those characters, where it's like humdrum, homespun, you know, they're small people doing this for small reasons, not grandiose reasons. And yet the Nixon one, holy shit, that had everything to it. It had a whole cast of characters. It had the big grandiose thing of it being like a Nixon thing. It's like, that's something that like, especially when you were saying, oh, it was never confirmed at whether or not Nixon had this money. It's just like, okay, so that could be like a falsified fictional fact. So like, it was kind of like the open-ended question of whether Nixon had this money or not. You could make a movie about that. You really tricked me. You really got me. You got me good. Listen, I, I would love to take credit, but also this story was already set up like a movie. And like, listen, Keith Sharon literally wrote a screenplay about it. So right. like, I have to give credit to the story and the storytellers that came before me for, you know, setting me up for success. This is like one of those situations where it's clearly like, life imitates art and art imitates life. Like... The FBI agents have said that Emil and his crew are the greatest burglars that ever lived. Oh, wow. They're like, no other crew has pulled off what they've pulled off. They're like, the burglary was perfect in of itself. It's what they did after that got them caught. But the burglary itself was flawless. Right. Yeah, the FBI has said they are the greatest that ever lived. And... This is considered the greatest heist. That's high heist. praise. That's and high praise. Yeah. This yeah. is considered the greatest heist in American history. Kind of on dollar amount. 
but also because it's so, the dollar amount's so ambiguous, and so little of what they should have gotten, or supposedly gotten, or did get, was recovered. Like, they had so much money, they were just burying it on the side of the road. Oh my god! Yeah, this is the shit you need to check out the Crime Beat podcast for, to get <laughs> this full story that I would just butcher. That just reminds me of the Spongebob episode, where they, like, made so much bank with Pretty Patties. They were like, we tried shredding it, burning it, burying it, and even burning it! And Mr. Krause is just freaking out, because it's just like, there's so much money being wasted! They were just burying it on the side of the road. They had so much, it was coming out of their ears. Well, no, but that's also, if we circle back to our tall tale, in Mad Money, when they realize that the feds are onto them, they start trying to destroy the evidence, which is the cash. Oh my god. So, like, the- They're uh, doing their job! <laughs> but in- <laughs> But in their home! But after the fact! <laughs> no, like, Diane Keaton's husband has a literal, like, hand shredder over the toilet, shredding bills and flushing it. Queen Latifah's character is burying it and burning it. Katie Holmes' character, they lived in a trailer and then bought a brand new, like, traveling RV. They literally rigged their trailer to explode with all of the cash in it. And then the FBI literally came in and arrested them oh with a helicopter. Oh my god. But yeah, I'm like, these people have so much cash, they're just leaving it places. So yeah, the the loot they got from this job was in the millions. Damn. Help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let you do the outro, but I think I've held everyone hostage for long enough. And I, think I that was a very good episode, Jack. Thank you. I'm I'm very excited. I can't wait for everyone to hear it. Thanks everyone for listening and um take us out, Kat. Alright. Well, thanks, guys, for listening. This has been Kat. And I'm Jack. And, you know, it's been real. It's been uncomfy. It's been real uncomfy. So get yourself some soup. I don't know. Recover from that. We'll see you next time. This has been True Crime or Tall Tale, a true crime podcast. See y'all later. Bye. (laughs) 